when I was walking up here after we had the most wonderful singing in the entire world, I screamed just because I'm happy to be here and I got in trouble. So sorry if I disturbed you. Not really, but I'm <laughs> publicly. I hope you got a little bit of help last night. One of the most difficult things in the world is, is to recognize uh, when we're the problem. And if you didn't get anything else out of the service last night, maybe you recognize that until you're willing to do business with the Lord, the way the Lord wants you to do business, um, somebody's going to have to give me an outline. I can't find my notes. <coughs> Hang on one second here. I just um, Is to recognize that you're, you have to be the one that is willing to admit I'm the problem. And uh, don't you tell me I left that thing... Brother Jeremy, will you bring me my Bible case? And inside the Bible case is a phone, so don't maybe drop that. Although it would not be too bad if you did. I know I'm going to Deuteronomy. Thank you, sir. It's embarrassing. Brother Lynch used to tell me I can't preach without notes anyway, so... All right. Hang on. Uh, somebody give a word of testimony. Never mind. Just so you know, I'm not unprepared. It's kind of like, oh, he's just going to shoot off the cuff today. You don't want to do that. Deuteronomy chapter 4. There we go. Deuteronomy chapter number 4. Now, one of, let me start over again, take a breath here for a second. One of the most difficult things to do is, is to, we, we tend to be selfish. Is that a true, fair statement? We tend, that's our natural thing. We protect ourselves. You know, Job says, skin for skin, all other man hath, he gives for his life, right? So we tend to think of ourselves first. It's human nature to do that. I'm not getting on to you for doing it, but you do have to learn to control that because that's the exact opposite of what the Lord would have you to be as far as Christianity is concerned. But it's a good thing to be selfish when it comes to recognizing that when we're talking about preaching, as you heard last night during the prayer, it's intended not to go to your head, that's intellect, but to go to your heart. That's the part where you make your decisions and things. So when the Lord says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's important to recognize that if I'm not careful to guard my heart and keep it with all diligence, because out of it are the issues of life, if I don't have a heart change, having a head change doesn't change anything. People talk about all the time, change your mind, change your mind, change your mind. Okay, I understand the passage in the Bible that are talking about that, but a heart change is what we're looking for. And it's not you changing someone else's heart. It's not you looking at somebody else and saying, well, they need to change this and they need to change that, and if they'd fix this and if they'd fix that. It's, Lord, what do I need to do? What needs to be with me? Hardest preaching in the world is when Nathan comes in there after David, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit tonight, but he comes in there after David's mess there in uh, 2 Samuel 11, I guess it is, and 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes in there and he says, Thou art the man. Now, the difference in David and Saul is this. David says, You got me. Saul does what Adam did in the garden and what Eve did in the garden. The serpent, poor old thing, he didn't have anybody else to blame, so he took the brunt of everything. But human nature is, is to blame your environment and to blame all the other things. Well, they were in a perfect environment and still messed up. 
So that should let you know that even in a perfect environment, if you don't guard your heart and you don't keep it, the devil can find a way in there, or your own selfish motives can find a way in there, or the worldly influences can find a way in there. And the next thing you know, you're having this seesaw effect. Now, there's nothing more miserable in the Christian life, at least when you're trying to do your best to live right, to have this constant problem with these uh, besetting sins that keep coming up. And then what happens is your relationship winds up being somewhat shallow. The idea of your relationship with Jesus Christ is, is that, well, I got saved. Praise the Lord. I'm sealed to the day of redemption. Thank the Lord for that. Glad you got eternal security down pat. But then the relationship portion of that thing, the communication breaks down, and generally speaking, our communication results in two things. Number one, we'll say, Lord, I need something today. They asked a guy one time, he said, hey, man, you've been working on your prayer life? He said, yeah, I'm working on my prayer life. Well, did you pray today? He said, no, I didn't need anything. Well, that's a bad kind of a way to have a relationship with the Lord. The only time you pray is when you need something. But secondly, I come to the Lord and I need him to forgive me again for some mess that I made. So you used to, back in the day, they had revival meetings and camp meetings and stuff, and the people would come to the altar and they'd get right. If you were Southern Baptist, you rededicated your life. That's the only reason you ever went to the altar. And so one of the things that happens is, is it sort of creates this sort of shallow relationship with the Lord. The only thing you know about him is salvation and repentance and forgiveness and salvation and repentance and forgiveness. And at what point does a relationship get a little bit deeper where I learn to listen to what God has to say? Now I'm going to show you in the Bible, and Moses is going to be your first example here, that Moses heard from the Lord out of a burning bush. The Lord doesn't speak out of a burning bush nowadays. There's many voices nowadays that are trying to get you to listen to them. And you have to be able to discern those voices. Now, I decided instead of writing all these things down, if you want to take notes, and you can take notes. And if you don't, I'm not going to get on to you or chastise you for it and all that kind of stuff. I've been so long since I was a teenager, I don't even remember what I was doing when I was a teenager. I know I went to youth camps and that kind of a thing. I remember a few messages from back then. I don't remember whether I took notes or didn't take notes. If they, if they existed, I... I can't chastise you for not doing it. But if you're interested, if you want to not have to waste time while you're a teenager and then wait till you grow up and then have all these things in your history that you have to remember because you kept messing up, messing up, and messing up, if you want to change the outcome, if you want to change where you're going to go, now's a great time to start. You don't have to wait. You don't have to go, quote, sow your wild oats. You're the generation probably, I hope, I hope I'm right when I say this, I hope you see the rapture. I mean, I hope the Lord comes and gets you. You say, well, i still got a lot of life to live. It'd be, be better if you live it up there than you live it down here. But I wouldn't waste any time if I was you. I would go ahead and be ready now. You say, wow, you may get back home and you may find out you got a disease. You may find out you get hit by a car and wind up uh, being absent from the body and present with the Lord. I can't control that. I can try to encourage you to tell you that it's a good idea for you to learn it as soon as you can learn it. Because if you learn it, you can ingrain it as a habit. I mentioned to you toward the end of last night, habits are gained by repetition. Uh, you have a guy that's a basketball player, and you see after everything's over and done with and uh, that kind of a deal, and practice is over and wind sprints are done and, you know, suicides are done and all that kind of stuff. And then he goes out there, and he's got a rack of basketballs over here, and he's standing there at the foul line, and he's bouncing the ball however many times his number is, and he gets it up, and he sets it, and he shoots it, and he stands there, and he sets it, and he shoots it, and he might shoot until he hits 100 in a row. You say, why is he doing that? So that under pressure, he knows if it comes down to that one or two seconds left on the clock, and you just got fouled going to the bucket, 
Now you have an opportunity to do something you've been practicing. You say, well, it's a habit. I get back into my routine. It's a habit. You say, why? You're less likely to mess up if you're prepared for it. Doing what I used to do on a regular basis, and I may talk about it too much. It was a dear part of my life for a long time. But we used to train and 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 train, and train with uh, different things that you have to do. You say, why? Under pressure, if you don't have any training, you know what you'll do? You'll, result, you'll, you'll fall back to what you do know. And if you don't know what to do, you have a meltdown. Well, spiritually, when you get under pressure, if you don't practice and practice and practice when you're not under pressure, the chances for you to crumble and for you to miss the shot or whatever it may be are much greater. I'm not saying it's fail-proof, but it gives you the best chance at success. Does that make sense? So in other words, if I'm talking about a guy's life on the line and then all of a sudden, just a few days ago, a guy comes charging at him with a knife in one hand and a gun in the other hand, and he even said in his statement that, he said, I just reacted. Well, if he hadn't have been trained, he would have been the one dead. Now, you, you think, well, that's not that big of a deal. No, he said, he said, listen, this was his first day by himself in a car alone, just finished his regular training with a training officer, and his first day out, here comes a guy off the porch charging him like a bull at a red flag, and he said, I just reacted. Well, how did that happen? Because he'd been trained. So some of the things that I'm going to try to show you are things that maybe took years for me to ingrain, years for me to learn, years for me to, to recognize the importance of ingraining good habits in your spiritual life. Oftentimes we tell you the necessity of reading your Bible, but we don't tell you why. A lot of it's just to ingrain good habits, good thoughts, the right way to think about things. If you don't have an, an absolute, then guess what? You're going to constantly be barraged with these things I'll show you this morning, Lord willing, by all these other voices that are talking to you. And because you don't have a standard there, you're going to be confused. You're going to be thinking, man, i got all these things going off in my head. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. But if you train and ingrain good habits, I read the Bible today and I got the Bible done and this and that and the other. And look, everybody has the jokes about reading Chronicles and those kind of things. Don't worry about reading Chronicles if you had not read Genesis. I mean, don't worry about, you know, well, it's going to be a boring part in life. I, I understand that. There's some boring parts that are in there, and they're all necessary. But, you know, all of us talk about that like we're reading the Bible so much that we're reading Chronicles every single day. It doesn't take you very long to get through Chronicles. You say, why? Because it's boring. And you can't pronounce half the names in there without a self-pronouncing Bible anyway. And so you just have a tendency to run through that. So let's not make a big deal out of the boring parts of the Bible and the necessity of them. What about the good parts in the Bible? They asked a president one time, they said to him about, you know, do you believe everything in the Bible? He said, yes. Do you do everything, understand it in the Bible? He said, no, I don't understand everything in the Bible. It's the things I do understand that concern me. The most necessary issues. And you don't get those just by hearing your preacher preach. Your preachers get a shot at you maybe three times on Sunday and maybe once in a midweek service. That's four times to counteract, on average, seven and a half hours of screen time. And take away from that also your sleeping time. You don't have a whole lot of time for the preacher to be able to work himself in there with all the other influences that you have. You're going to have to take the responsibility on your own. I talked to several professional athletes that I know personally, individually, and I'm interested because I'll never be at that level, never play at that level in any kind of sport whatsoever. I don't have that kind of an ability. Every one of them told me something that stood out. It was salient. It protruded. It, it was important. It was really strange. Every single one of them admitted that they were given gifts that were beyond the norm or they wouldn't play at that level. 
But here's what they said to me without fail. When we get ready to practice, after we're done practicing as a team, we all go practice our weak spots. He said the difference in us and amateurs is, he said in any sport, you'll see them constantly honing what they're good at because they're worried about when people are watching them. He said they're worried about how they look when they're doing it, so they won't practice their weak spots. And one basketball player I talked to, he said, you know, when I get ready to do things, he said, I'm right-handed, it's natural. He said, but if you're going to play where I do, I have to learn to be able to use my left hand just as well. And he said, man, I mean, I look like I couldn't even hardly walk and chew gum at the same time. But he said, now I've gotten where I can shoot with either hand pretty well. Baseball players the same way. They become ambidextrous. It's not their go-to, but they can do it if they need to. Football players, golfers, the ones I've talked to, here's what they do. They practice their weak spots. The thing you have to know about that is, is that you have to know what your weak spot is. Now, that's worth writing down. You say, why? Because we generally will accent our strengths. But do you know your weak spots? Do you know where you're vulnerable? Do you know where the devil can find a foothold? I mean, bitterness is a good place for that to be able to creep in there and anger and wrath and strife and emulation and losing your temper and, you know, throwing stuff and punching walls and doing all that kind of stuff. That's an outward, that's an off-gassing of a deeper problem. It's a weak spot. So those professional athletes told me, they told me this across the board. See, we're already thinking about if we're in a game or if we're in the playoffs and if we're fixing to do that, under pressure we know what's going to happen. The chances of us messing up because of that weak spot are going to be highly heightened and everybody's going to remember because I dropped the ball or I didn't do this or do that. So we practice our weak spot. I thought to myself, I'm just worth writing down. You say, why? If we would do that in our spiritual life, we wouldn't have what I call the yo-yo effect. Now what happens, generally speaking, the truth of the matter is, and the numbers bear it out to be true, is that when kids get to be about 18 or 19 years old, and sometimes now it's a little earlier than that because they're maturing a lot faster, and so around 17 or so, they begin to think, you know, I know more and I don't need this religion stuff and I don't need this relationship stuff and I don't need this Jesus stuff and I want to get out here and do the, the only thing that I want to do, what I, whatever I want to do, and they make a mess of their life. And then they come back in, sometimes with a baby attached to it, and sometimes with a busted marriage, and sometimes with a, a bad addiction habit, and sometimes demon-possessed and all kind of other stuff. And they come back where they never should have left in the first place if they'd have just worked on their weak spots. The devil knows your weak spot. He shows up right at the time. He doesn't attack you when you're strongest. Don't ever pause to think that when you get out on your knee, when the devil sees the weakest nation down on his crease, he begins to tremble. He don't tremble. He'll get out right there with you and start talking to you while you're praying. That woman with a spirit of divination over there, every time uh, Paul began to pray, she began to interrupt the prayer, even though it was amen and that's right, preacher, and tell him, preacher. Interruptions, weak spots. So I'm going to try to give you a couple of things here to recognize the first and foremost thing after you recognize the weak spots is how to discern a good coach to be able to help you through that. Sometimes you have to get private tutoring in school. Don't raise your hand, but you struggle with a particular subject. I struggle with algebra. And the main reason was because I was stubborn and lazy. And that's just the fact of the matter. It wasn't that it wasn't something that I couldn't grasp. It's something I didn't want to grasp. I made jokes about it, you know, A plus C, A plus B equals C squared times 2 pi and this and that and the other, uh, you know, pi R squared, no, pi's round and all that other kind of stuff. And I made a joke of it to kind of just hide my weakness. I was too lazy to study it. Well, how am I going to use that when I get out in life? 
there was a life lesson right there. If you don't pass this, you're not going to have to, it's going to change the trajectory of your life. I had to have algebra in order to graduate. So my dad, the old ogre that he was, mean-spirited, just, you know, just rough and hard as he could possibly be, he uh, went in there and he said, boy, you're going to pass that class. And I said, yes, sir, I'll do the best I can. And he said, yeah, well, in the meantime, you're going to carry that book with you everywhere you go. And he said, when that teacher sees you in the lunchroom, he's going to see you with that uh, book in your hand. And he sees you going to practice, he's going to see you with that book in your hand. He said, you're going to bring it with you to church. It's the same, same way you bring your Bible. I guess he was hoping it'd rub off by osmosis. No, what he was telling me is, is you're not making time for the thing where you're weak. The other classes I could do okay at. I was just being a jerk. I just didn't want to do it. I was just going to stand my ground, and I, I, don't, I don't see any point in algebra. You say, do you use algebra now? No, but I use the lessons I learned from it. Because in life, girls and boys, ladies and gentlemen, men and women, whatever you want to call me that's politically correct now to you, I will say this, you're female or male, there's no other gender stuff, but the, you can amen that. We're, we're not in a politically correct place right now. I'll be gone in a week and then you can go back and whatever. I know your preachers, they teach you two genders. They don't teach you this while well, I woke up and didn't know what I was. You know what? God had enough sense to know you didn't know any better than to know what you were, so he told your mom and daddy, female, male. That's how it is. That's how you tell what animals to put together out in the farm, right? So I'm offended by that. Okay, well, build a bridge and get over it. I don't really care. But uh, what I learned from that, ladies and gentlemen, was this. I learned that sometimes in life you have to have the character to do what's right even if you don't like it. I was raised in a different generation than you. I didn't get to pick what I wanted. My mama never cut no crust off the bread for me. Some of you guys, you know, if mommy don't cut the crust off the bread, you just, oh, oh, mommy, can you cut the crust off? Bite it off, do whatever you want to do. But I wouldn't dare spit it in the garbage can. I'd be getting it out of the garbage can to eat it. And so when I'm coming up through there, you sit down there, and there's broccoli and Brussels sprouts and avocado, man. And my daddy said, you're going to eat it. And I said, I don't want it. And he said, okay, well, put it in the refrigerator. The next morning I got up, and he said, there you go. He said, you're supposed to have eggs and bacon or you're supposed to have Pop-Tarts or cereal or whatever you have and, you know, cinnamon rolls and all that. Not you. You have what you have left over for supper. Well, I don't want it. Okay, no problem. Go to school, have vegetable soup or whatever I was supposed to eat there and came back home, supper time, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, avocado. I said, these are leftovers. Yeah, you left them over. <laughs> They'll be here when you wake up in the morning. Well, I got the broccoli and Brussels sprouts down. Brussels sprouts still, unless you put enough honey and maple syrup on them and bacon in them, everything tastes better with bacon. But anyway, you put enough of that on there, you can pretty much get them. I know you love them. They look like squirrel brains to me, man. I just, you know, but I make them. I, I can make them get down with that. And I got the broccoli down. I've learned to love, I call them baby trees. I've, I've learned to get down with the baby trees and stuff. You put enough ranch dressing on anything or cheese, you can get it down. That avocado, boy, I struggled with. I just, you know, I just, I just, it's like, man, that's like congealed vomit or something. I just, I'm going to come to this in a second. And I thought to myself, man, I just, so I said, uh, can I put something on it? He said, sure, but you're going to eat the avocado. I tried mayonnaise and barbecue sauce. I tried ketchup. I tried mustard. I even put pickle relish on it, man. By the time it was done, it really did look like throw up, man. <laughs> And I wound up scraping it off. I don't know why I didn't just swallow it whole. It's so slimy, it goes down on its own, you know. If you can get it past that gag reflex. 
you know, that you get past it in your mind. You just get it on by there and do that kind of a deal. Well, I learned something from that, believe it or not, that sometimes in life you have to learn to do things you don't like to do. Sometimes in life, you know what will happen? Somebody will come up and ask you to go do something that you know better than to do and your friendship with them and your reputation and your relationship's on the line and you feel that pressure. And the Lord says, come on, I'll walk with you. Yeah, but Lord, they're not going to see you. They're gonna, I'm going to be by myself. And the devil will get up on your shoulder and start talking to you and say, oh, come on, man, a little bit won't hurt. And then before long, you ingrain a habit. And then before long, you got a weak spot. And then before long, you're wishing, boy, I sure wish I hadn't have done that. You say, what is character? The ability to say no when it's right to say no, no matter what the consequences. But it's tough, isn't it? You know when it's really tough? You want to make a good judgment of yourself before we get into this tonight or this morning? You want to make a good judgment of yourself? What you are when you're alone is the real you. And what you would do if you didn't think anybody would know and it wouldn't matter the consequences if you got caught, that's the real you. That's you, what I call, off the chain. Well, ladies and gentlemen, for me, I don't like that guy. And I don't want to see him show up. So for me, I got to keep him at bay. I got to watch out for him. Now, what do I have to do? I have to learn to listen to the Lord. I can even deceive myself. Right? If a man thinks he's wise, if a man thinks he knows something when he knows nothing, he deceives himself. Right? You ever been around the people that think they know everything? That Bible says if you think you know everything and you don't really know anything, you're deceived in and of yourself. You have to worry about yourself. You don't have to worry about other people. It requires character. Are you in Deuteronomy chapter 4? All right. Father, bless your word this morning and help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 4. You don't have to stand or anything. Watch this. 32. For ask now the days that are past, which is before thee, since the day God created man upon the earth, and ask from one side of heaven to the other whether there hath been any such thing as great as this, or hath been heard like this. He's telling you to ask. Ask because uh, you ask. You have not because you ask not. Or you ask and really consume it upon your own lust. Or uh, you, you ask uh, because you want it for another ulterior motive. He said ask according to the will of God. So here he's saying that these people are, t he's encouraging you to create a conversation. You heard last night when Brother Joe got up here and he told you something real important. And you should have just written maybe if nothing else one word down there. He wrote down the word or said the word communication. The first thing that happens in a situation that occurred, and I have to just go back historically and tell you that we always had backups for all of our comm system because whenever you're doing an operation and it happens to be a real serious kind of thing, invariably the communication between what's going on in the operations center and the guys that are boots on the ground and the guys that are up in the high ground and all that stuff, invariably the comms go out. Man, you're literally talking life and death. Somebody hears you say green light when you said red light, you are in some serious trouble and now some innocent people have been harmed. So you have to recognize that under pressure, the first thing that will happen is the communication breaks down. You better know who it is talking and giving the orders before you wind up doing something you're going to regret later on. So the Lord's saying to you, communicate with me. Now he's trying. You have a Bible in your lap, King James Bible in your lap. I don't care which one it happens to be. It, it doesn't matter which one the King James Bible is and who, what uh, commentator you choose to, to, to uh, utilize or to follow after. The bottom line is the text is there. That's God's words 
to you individually, not to us, not to the world, to you. It should be personal to you. I guarantee you, if you read that Bible, you know what you'll find? You'll find the Lord, He'll sometimes He'll comfort you, and sometimes He'll communicate with you, and sometimes He'll get on your dingbat and discipline you and wear you out. Sometimes He'll give you direction, and sometimes He'll be quiet, but you'll know what you'll learn? You'll learn how God talks to you. You'll have favorite verses in that Bible that'll just jump off the page sometimes. And you'll have verses that'll come to your mind that you've been reading. You don't even know you know until all of a sudden you're in a situation and the verses begin to come. The Lord said, I told you I was with you. Told you I was with you. Told you I was with you. He knows you. But that's Him communicating with you. How do you communicate with Him? Prayer. See, He gives it to you and He sometimes give you a preacher or a teacher to give you what their, uh, their spin on the passage is and to give you the correct biblical interpretation of things and to give it to you and teach you rightly dividing. And then He turns around and He said, okay, now I'd like to hear from you. He's not just one, shut up, sit down and listen. What He does is, is He tells you, I got something for you, but you got to talk to Him. You ever come to him and say, Lord, I know I got a weak spot here. I got an Achilles heel right here. I got a, I got a problem where I got a particular tendency here and I, I need you to help me with that. Can you give me some Bible verses? Man, you talk about making you hungry for the Bible. You pray a prayer like that and then start turning the pages, not playing Bible roulette. I'm talking about reading your Bible and all of a sudden that thing will jump off the page and you're, well, I never saw that before. I've read it through 10 times. And the Lord said, yeah, but you asked me specifically. That makes God real to you. So he's asking you to communicate. Do you communicate? Is it just one-way communication? Or do you talk to him? Do you really think whatever it is you come to him with, he's going to be shocked by it? <laughs> he's been watching men and women since Adam. You're not going to surprise him with whatever it is you want to talk to him about. Do you talk to him about him when your heart's broken? Or do you send out a text? Do you look for counseling instead of preaching? You read after a psychiatrist or psychologist or go see the doctor instead of talking to the great physician first? I didn't say don't go to those people. I just said, did you talk to him first? You might be surprised how you might find some consolation and some comfort in what it is you're seeking if you wind up seeking him. If you look for him, he'll be glad to be found. He's right there with you. Now here's what he does with Moses. Watch what he says in verse number 33. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as though they had heard, uh, heard and lived? Meaning you heard God speak and then lived? No, not anybody till Moses. Moses is the only one he spoke out of, the, out of that uh, fire, uh, flaming bush to. But ladies and gentlemen, jump all the way down to verse number 36. He says, Out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice that he might instruct thee, and upon earth he showed thee his great fire. Thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. Moses knew exactly how God was talking to him, and the test case was originally when he sent him on the backside of the desert, and then he didn't talk to him for a while. Come, if you will, please, over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. The voice of the Lord spoke to Moses, and then after a while, guess what happened? Moses is continuing in a dialogue. Moses goes up on the mountain, the Lord speaks to him, he comes down, speaks to the people. Moses goes up on the mountain, the Lord gives him ten commandments. Moses comes down, breaks the ten commandments, the Lord sends him back up there, he gives him the ten commandments again. There's a constant dialogue going on all the way to the end of that book of Deuteronomy. When you get up there and uh, Moses was in his old age, his eyes went down, his natural forces abated, and he's going up there to have a meeting with the Lord. And the Lord said, this is where you were headed, but you're not going to go in there. And the Lord puts him to bed and kills him up there and, the, and then takes him up later on with Jude, I mean with uh, Michael the archangel. But he continued from that point on to have constant uh, con 
conversation with the Lord. Now Moses is a great prophet. Now if that's the case, the Lord doesn't intend for that to stop, but he's not going to speak to you out of a burning bush. He's not going to come out and write something in the sky for you. You don't have to worry about going out and staring at the sun until you see double and burn your eyes out of your head or do some uh, different kind of medications or drugs or whatever it may be and try to get him to talk to you or sit around and meditate till you quit thinking about yourself and step out of your body and into some other world. That's not how God communicates nowadays. God communicates to you with words through a preacher. God communicates to you with a teacher. God communicates to you through his book. But you communicate to God through prayer. You communicate to him with a submissive willingness to do whatever God tells you. Let me ask you this. Some of you here, we'll get into this later in the week, you're looking for the, quote, will of God in your life. Let me just tell you something simple. If you're not doing the things you already know to do that are God's will for your life, don't expect him to light up the pathway for you to do some big thing for him. If you're not willing to do the little things, he can't trust you with the big things. The little things are all test cases. That's why it's important sweeping up things and picking up trash and plunging toilets and cutting grass and painting stuff. You think, oh, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal if you're doing what God wants you to do. But you're awaiting, oh, Lord, I want him to call me to preach. I don't want him to send me to, you know, Africa or I want him to send me to some foreign nation and this and that and the other. How about are you doing what he says to do? How about being kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you? How are you doing with that one? How about giving thanks always for all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you? How are you doing with that one? There's a lot of wills of God that are in there. How about I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know that which is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. How are you doing with that one? See, there's a lot of things that are in there that apply to everybody. But unless you're already working on doing those things, don't expect there to be something special out there for you. God's just looking down to see if you put in your time. You, uh, let's say, let's take baseball, for instance. A player may be really good. He may be really talented and so on and so forth. And he just shows up on game day. Any good coach is not going to play that guy. I don't care if they could win the pennant with the thing. You say, why? He doesn't show up and put his time in. If you're not faithful to just come to church, read your Bible and pray, the things that are the basics in life, why should you be elevated to the pros? Why should God put the pressure on you if you can't give that kind of a testimony? Why would the Lord put the pressure on you to think that you can provide something? Listen, an old preacher said years and years ago, his name was uh, Brother Mack, he's a black guy. You know what he said? He said, you can't out-preach your life. He said, they watch how much how you live as opposed to what you say. Well, I found that to be true. I find, ladies and gentlemen, I find that people watch what you do more than they listen to what you say. And the power that you have when you say something is they've seen your separated life and they're like, okay, you know what? Maybe he's got something I can listen to. But people miss that because they're looking for some big thing, some big explosion, some gigantic, oh man, if I could just do this for the Lord and all that. And you read all of these heroes of the faith, but you know where they started? They started right where you are. They were all kids. You know what they did? They made a commitment from early in life, this is what I'm going to do. Yes, there's testimonies of people that didn't get saved until later in life and then they turned on the afterburner and did something for the Lord. But you don't have to be that way. And you know what you're thinking? You're thinking, well, I'll be that guy. There's a lot of them that never made it back from out in the far country. You don't have to go ruin your life to have a testimony. You know what a good testimony is? I got born, I got raised on drugs, man. I got brought to church all the time, every time since nine months before I was born. And I went to Sunday school and I went to this and that and I went to so-and-so, I went to church camp, I went to this, I sang in the choir, I got saved. 
Now, what's your life been like that? I stayed in the church, did what the Lord wanted me to do and stuff, and I got married and got a couple of kids, and, you know, okay, well, what kind of testimony is that? Boy, that's a good, refreshing testimony. You don't have to get up here and say, you know, I don't let people do that. I'm bad about it. If you got a wicked life, you know what I say? Go give a testimony. I had a wicked life, and I think, Lord, I met Jesus Christ, and people will fill in the blanks. <laughs> you ain't going to tell them everything. What's the point of you doing that? You say, well, they just want to run the movie in their head. We're not doing that. I had a wicked life. Thank the Lord he stepped in. Thank you saved by the grace of God, and I sure appreciate it. Trying to turn my life around now. Thank you. Have a seat. The idea that they're giving you kids is, is that I need to get out there, and that's how you really magnify Jesus. No, it isn't. Not how you do it. You wind up with scars on you. He doesn't intend for you to go wayward. I'm not saying he won't forgive you. He will. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Is this making 14? Is it making any sense to you at all? At least to two or three of you anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter number 14. Look in verse number 10. Now this context here has to do with tongues. Would you agree to if, if I would say this statement to you? Would you agree that if I was speaking um, oh, uh, Portuguese right now? Anybody here know Portuguese? If I was speaking Portuguese right now, would it do you any good? I mean, even if I was screaming fire or earthquake or something else, would it, would it help you at all? What he's fixing to do is make a correlation to, you're going to hear a lot of voices, but if the voice isn't clear, if the voice is unsure, then guess what happens? You're fixing to be deceived, trying to spend all the time to understand the voice. When God speaks, it's clear. It'll be right in line with the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter number 14, look if you will please, verse number 10 and 11. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without uh, signification. They're important to whoever listened to. Therefore, if... I know not the meaning of the voice. It shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh all shall be a barbarian unto me. Now he's using that in the context of languages. Come over to James chapter number 3. <clears throat> and what he's trying to get across to you there is, is that uh, when individuals are speaking languages you can't understand, it doesn't do you any good. But I'm going to make the parallel or the practical application of this. If who you're listening to requires a whole lot of effort on your part to understand, it's probably another voice. God speaks clearly in the Bible. If you're not sure, I guarantee you it'll line up with what the book says. He'll never go against his spoken words, and he'll never go against the scripture that you have in your lap. So you have an automatic gauge to be able to check it. You have a translator right in front of you. It's a King James Bible, and it's sitting there. And if you're praying about something in specific, God's not going to light up a burning bush for you. and God's not going to write it in the clouds. God's going to show you from Scripture so that it's not founded on just emotion. It's God confirming the Word with the Word. That's not confusing to me. And if you're ever going to nail anything down like that, because there'll be a lot of naysayers, and if you accept a call to do whatever God would have you to do, you have to get that thing down pat first. You can't do it based on a preacher, or a teacher, or a mama, a daddy, an aunt, an uncle, a grandpa, a papa, an anna, whatever it may be, uh, your boss, your best friend. That has to be something between you and the one that called you, and that's the Lord himself. And if you don't know when he talks to you, then you need to spend some time to find out, how does God speak to me? Now, you'll be in here sometimes, and maybe some of you even last night, the Lord speaks directly to you, might not even have anything whatsoever to do with what was being preached last night. But God spoke to you, and you knew it was God, and you responded to that. 
you have to recognize that every one of you is hearing something different right now. Between my mouth and your ears, there's all kind of things going on to try to confuse you. And before that thing can get down into your heart and take root, the devil's going to do everything he can to try to grab it and snatch it out of here. And so you have to recognize that word is valuable enough for the devil to take time when the word is preached. This is why you have problems with people in churches. They go against the pastor, and it's not just because he's an ogre. It's because he's preaching the word of God, and what they're trying to do is stop the word of God. Let me show you the importance. Can I? Could I maybe use Jesus as an illustration? Jesus goes out in the wilderness of temptation. Now, we all believe Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, right? We're not one of these individuals who think they're three separate entities. They're three different manifestations, but they're all God, right? We have three little separate creations in the devil's his brother kind of deal, the Mormon theology deal. All right, so if Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, and we believe that, and that's how you try the spirits in 1 John 4, when the Lord goes out in the wilderness of temptation, led of the spirit to go out there, he's tempted of the devil for 40 days, and he comes down to those last three main temptations there, and he gets ready to do the battle with the devil. Now, if anybody should have power over the devil, it would be God in the flesh. Is that a fair statement? Did you ever look how that battle goes? Do you ever pay any attention to that? I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying, do you ever pay any attention to it? Here's God who all he has to do is speak and he can have him disappear. and have, He can speak and have him obliterated. He can speak and do whatever. You know what he says? All three of those things, you know what he says? It is written. It is written. It is written. Every time he speaks to come against him, you know what he says? This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. Now, if Jesus does that, quotes scripture to get rid of the devil, to shut up the devil. The devil's talking to the Lord the same way he's talking to Eve in the garden and winds up messing with Adam, right? Only Eve didn't rebuke him with scripture. So the Lord comes along and will show you the value of Scripture. That's why you should know the Scripture. You say, why? When you fall under demonic attack, you can sit there and say all you want to do. Oh, you don't scare me. I'm not afraid of you, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. That's a statement of fact. That don't help you get rid of him. Do you have Scripture? You say, what is that? He runs from Scripture. Or he'll twist it. Because when the Lord quoted Scripture, he quits it back, but he just takes a little off of it, just like he did with Eve. Well, if it worked with Eve, guess what happened? It'll work against us. But if it works with the Lord to know the scripture, that's the power that's in that book you have in your lap. I know we all build it up and all, you know, it's a man, all that. But you don't really believe that until you use it to ward off the demonic attack. That's what I'm trying to get into you. That's what your preachers are trying to get into you. You know, they just keep hitting the book, the book, the book, the book, the book, the book, the book. That's where the power's at. They're trying to help you. All right, look at this thing in James chapter number three. Here's a good way to check the source. <clears throat> we'll come all the way to verse 15. The Bible said, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. There's three comparisons right off the bat. Whoever it is that you're listening to, whoever it is you're talking to, whatever, even if it's a preacher and all that, if it's earthly, sensual, and devilish, the Bible tells you right there, it descends not from above, but it comes from worldly sources. Why? It's sensual. It's appealing to your flesh. Something about the Bible that's strange is, is it's contrary to your flesh every time you turn around. Galatians chapter number 5 teaches you the flesh and the spirit, one wars against the other, so you cannot do the things you would. And he says, walk in the spirit, so you don't fulfill the things of the flesh. Why? Because the flesh is contrary to you. 
You know what earthly and uh, sensual and devilish is? It appeals to your flesh. It's no cost to your flesh. There's nothing else. Somebody says, I've been called to go to Bible school. I'm going to leave and go to, go to Bible school. And everybody says, well, now, wait a minute. You need to get a college education first. You need to get your income. You need to get married first. You need to have children first. You need to have all that. See, that's, that appeals to my flesh. And this idea of going to Bible school, well, it doesn't really make any sense, and you can't earn any money with a Bible school degree, and you're not called to be a preacher, you're not called to be a pastor, what good is it for you to go to Bible school? That's all appealing to, yeah, it can make me fear, but what if God were to call you to go to Bible school? Would you go to Bible school? You say, well, I, I'd go. Well, you could, it requires faith, see? Earthly, sensual, devilish, you don't have to have faith to do that. It makes you feel good. Look down on the next verse here in verse number 16. For where envy and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. That's earthly stuff, sensual stuff. Now you're justifying yourself for doing what you're doing because it's self-protecting. Does that make sense to you? You don't have to defend that if it's the Lord's will for your life. But what will happen is, is you're starting to defend whatever your position is and whatever you've taken up because the source is wrong. Now watch, here's a way to check it. You can do what the Bible tells you rightly divided. And it's not going to hurt you. <clears throat> Verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable and gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace to them that make uh, peace. So what he just tells you there is, come to 1 Kings chapter uh, 19. 1 Kings 19, he said, you can check the source by the fruit of the source. There's always this... Uh, this, this question mark, uh, probably many of you don't know um, uh, some of the, the people in the past that have had uh, cults, but they're always defending their cult, defending their cult, defending their cult. You know, it's a strange thing when you do what God wants you to do. There's a peace about doing it, and you don't expect everybody to understand it. I'm just doing what the Lord told me to do. Well, if I was you, well, you're not. Well, but I mean, I, I mean but, I, but you're not. Well, why did God call you? I don't know, but he did. Are you sure he called me? Yeah, I'm sure he called me. What's he doing? He's working on the steps. I don't know where I'm headed completely. I have no idea. See, why? Things change on a regular basis. All of them are classrooms. All of them are school. Until I die, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a permanent student of life, and I have to be willing to take orders every day or to stick with the orders I've been given until they change. You say, that sounds boring and monotonous. <laughs> it's anything but boring, I can tell you that. But it's routine duty. You say, what do you do? The same thing you were told to do until he decides to change it. You know what he wants? Somebody to just be faithful. Well, I'm bored with it. He didn't ask you whether you were bored or not. You know what he said? Will you do it? A lot of the Christian life is boring, isn't it? Not me. Come on, don't lie. I mean, going to church, reading your Bible, praying come back and do the same thing the next week. You know, here's the odd thing. You go to school all that time, graduate 12 years, and some of you wind up going to college or you wind up going to a tech school or you wind up learning a trade or whatever it might be. There's a shortage in that without question. And you do that monotonous stuff in order to make a living and in order to get through school so that you can get a degree, so that you can get a job. And you don't call that boring or monotonous, but when it comes to things you have to do on a daily basis for the Lord, that's boring and monotonous as if it's justification not to do it. Which one lasts in eternity? You see how all of a sudden the focal point changes? If you're not looking at eternity, it doesn't make any sense what we're doing right now. Literally. 
We're sitting here on a Tuesday morning. Half of you are rung slap out. You played games till midnight last night or whatever time it was. I was asleep. And by the time y'all got done with that, and then you went in the rooms and you chit-chatted and talked and you're getting reacquainted and saying hey to your friends and things like that, and you finally settle down 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and then the bell goes off at 7 and you're supposed to knock the snot out of your eyes and read your Bible and have some kind of a prayer or something and then go eat, I don't know, whatever you had, cereal or Pop-Tarts or whatever they fed this morning. And then you're sitting in here and listening to an old man shoot his mouth off. You're not even getting to have any inner reaction. We're not taking questions live from the audience. It's not a podcast. It's just an old man talking to you. It makes no sense at all unless you're looking at the judgment seat of Christ. It makes no sense at all unless you're saved and realize there's a life in the hereafter. But if you don't have that spiritual idea, if you came here just to be a better person morally, you could have got that in a boot camp somewhere. But let me just tell you this. That doesn't work. In the old days, prisons were called penitentiaries because it was intended for you to do penance for whatever crime you did. They weren't trying to correct them. They were punishing them for doing wrong. Now they changed it and said correctional institute. Here's the problem. From the old days and to today, the, recidivist, the, the, the amount that people return after being in there, it's actually higher now than it was then. Prisons are not for the purpose of reforming. They're the purpose of punishing. So guess what? I can put you in a boot camp and I can put enough pressure on you to make you conform to what I believe you should be, but it won't last. The minute I take that threat away or take your freedoms away or take the gun away from your head, you know what you're going to do? You're going to revolt back to whatever it was because you never really made that heart change. You just did what you had to do because you were forced into compliance. Now, if you take on Christianity where I'm just going to force you against your will, you're smoking crack. I'm not here to do that with you. I've learned the hard way. I can't change any one of you. If you won't submit your heart into the safest hands anywhere in the universe to God, there ain't no way I'm going to get you to trust me to do that. I can tell you it works, but I can tell you outward conformity to conformity doesn't mean anything. And go down to the prisons down there in the, in the south, and there's tons and tons of them. We spend a lot of time in them. And I go down there, and they're all dressed the same, and they got their hair cut the same, and they can't smoke, and they can't drink, and they can't watch TV, and they have to eat at the same time, and they have to go to chapel so much time. They have recreation at the same time and do all that. And it's a prison, and doesn't mean any of them are saved. Just because we look right, dress right, and spit white, that doesn't mean anything. It means you won't last under pressure. It means when the fire comes and when the bullets start coming in your direction, it means you're going to run because you're only doing it to preserve yourself. That's not what I'm here to show you. I'm here to tell you that if you'll learn to do what God says, if you'll recognize this passage I'm going to show you, that he is right there on top of you and he'll tell you which way to go and give you the direction that you need, you know what you'll be surprised? You'll be surprised how the two of you will be in lockstep together and you'll be walking together just like Amos 3.3 says and some of the difficulties and problems you have will take on an entirely new life. Look at this passage here. This is an old preacher. His name's Elijah. And uh, Brother Joe mentioned him last night. And you can't really talk about listening to God without talking about the old preachers, the old prophets. And this is after he's wound up under the juniper tree there and says, Enough, Lord, let me die. And then look, if you will, pick it up in verse number um, uh, 9. And he came hither, we're in 19, 1 Kings 19, verse 9. And he came hither unto a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah, what you doing over here in the cave? God's talking to him. And then he begins to defend himself, and he said, I, even I, am the only one, you know, that is left, and I'm the only one that's done what I'm supposed to do, and I'm unappreciated, and nobody loves me, and everybody hates me, and that kind of thing. And he said, and they're seeking to take my life. 
And the Lord says to him in verse 11, Go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. Well, you know what winds up happening. The wind comes and tears the rocks all to pieces, and then the earthquake comes, and then the fire comes, and those kind of things. You've read the passage before. By the time you get down to the end of verse number 12, uh, he finds out that the Lord's not in the high wind. And he finds out that the Lord's not in the earthquake. And he finds out the Lord's not in the fire. All of those things uh, create a lot of noise and can do a lot of destruction. We're always looking for the big things. You know what he finds out? Elijah says, the Lord's not talking to me in those things. We're talking about how to discern the voice of the Lord. And you know what he says? He says he's in the still, small voice. Well, how are you going to hear the still, small voice? You know what a still, small voice is? It's a whisper. Well, let me ask you a question. Did you hear anything I said? I said, I'm talking to you. Can you please respond? I'm, I'm talking to you. Can you please hear me? But you know what you'd have to do in order to be able to hear what I just said? I literally said it. I could hear myself saying it. You know the only way you'd be able to hear what I just said? What would you have to do? You say, tell you to speak up. No, he already spoke volumes. He didn't, he didn't speak in those things. What would you have to do? Say it again. Who would get closer, him or you? You ever realize sometimes when you think you're not hearing the Lord, it's just because you're not willing to get close enough to hear him? And instead of saying, well, the Lord's not speaking to me, the Lord said, I'm not speaking in tongues. You know what I said? Yes, I am. I'm speaking to you right now. But the problem is, is you don't recognize you're a long way from me. And if you want to hear from me, you need to get closer to me. You see, the problem was, is Elijah had all those things happen to him. And because of that series of events that occurred to him, unbeknownst to him, guess what had happened? He'd gotten away and the Lord's given him an illustration. Amen. I don't need to yell at you. I didn't yell at you when you were by the brook Cherith. I don't need to be screaming at you. I'm not in all these fancy things that are going on around here. You know what's happened? Your fellowship's broken. One of the most important things, you've heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it, and the old preacher used to say it time and time and time again, um, and all of a sudden come to uh, 1, King, or 1 Samuel, I'm sorry. 1 Samuel chapter number 16 is your fellowship with the Lord. One of the ways to know that your fellowship is out of fellowship is you can't hear from Him anymore. Maybe the first thing you should check, you should maybe make yourself a note and say, when I can't hear from the Lord, am I where I'm supposed to be? I'm not the poster child for it, but I've learned this. I'm oftentimes praying, for, even though I'm not Jewish, I'm oftentimes praying the Lord to give me a sign. <laughs> and the Lord said, I'm talking to you, why don't you just get closer? Well, Lord, I think you need to do this. And I just, you know, we, we all want to do talk to the Lord when it's in an advisory capacity. I like the passage about Samuel over there. He comes over there, his mama makes him a little coat every year as he begins to grow. She figures about how much he's going to grow. And he gets to a certain age over there and he's asleep one night and he hears his name called. And he goes into the preacher and he said, yes, sir, did you call me? And he said, no, I didn't call you, man. I'm sound asleep. Leave me alone. What's wrong with you, man? Get out of here. Runs him off. Happens again later on. 
And he goes back and he said, Preacher, he said, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you and that kind of thing, but uh, he said, Man, you're having nightmares or something. Leave me alone. Get out of here, man. And he runs back over there. He said, Man, I know I'm not crazy. I'm sitting here. I know I heard it. Runs back in there the third time, and the preacher goes, Man, that's a voice I hadn't heard in a while. You know what the preacher says to him? The next time you hear that voice, say this word Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. You say, what's the Lord doing? Establishing how he's going to talk to the new prophet because he quit talking to the old one. The old one had gotten out of communication with the Lord. His boys had gotten in the way. He let some things slip. The Lord got quiet. And then all of a sudden, the old preacher, he's like, oh boy, I know what's happening. And from that day forward, you know what is said about Samuel? It's not said about any other prophet in the Bible. From that day forward, he let not a word of the Lord fall to the ground. If God told him, he said it. In those days, before there's an open vision there, but in those days, before all the writing is done, God's communicating directly with his prophet, and that's going out to the, to the people. And what is he doing? He's establishing how he talks to him. Do you know how God talks to you? Do you know when it's God dealing with you? You ever been under false conviction about something that you don't really think it's wrong to do, but you feel bad about it? you know how to discern that? I'm going to try to show you this week. But sometimes the thing we don't recognize is the voice of the Lord will go against human reasoning. 1 Samuel chapter number uh, 16, or second, yeah, 1 Samuel chapter number 16. Notice this right here. Uh, come down to verse number 6. <clears throat> 16, that's it, verse number 6. This is when uh, he's going over there to uh, anoint uh, the king, the next king coming up. Verse 6, it came to pass when they were come, he looked upon Eliab and said, Surely the Lord is anointed before thee. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, and the Lord looketh on the heart. Things are not always what they appear to be. Now, does that make sense? That's Samuel. He's a, he's a smart guy. He's the prophet of the Lord. And he said, well, that must be the guy. I mean, he's got all the traits. He's got all the attributes. He's got all the talents. He's head and shoulders of everybody. He's a good-looking guy. Make a great-looking king. I mean, imagine the photo ops with that guy, man. I mean, it would be spread far and wide. And the Lord said, that ain't the guy. As a matter of fact, nobody even believes that. You come down through a little old story like this, this is the Lord just communicating, not out loud where he can hear it, just talking directly to Samuel. That's not the guy right there. And he goes in there and he says, Lord, about this one? Nope. How about this one right here? No, nope. well, this right here is not bad. Lord, I'm just thinking, I mean, yeah, nope. This one got here, all, got, got all the degrees. Man, he's got, all, he's got a master's in this and master's in that. And this one right here, he's been to law school. And this one right over here, he's this. And he's going to be a doctor and so on and so on. The Lord said, nope, ain't none of, he ain't here. And he turns and looks at the daddy. His daddy's name is Jesse. And he said, Jesse, may I ask you a question? And he said, yes, sir. He said, uh, you have anybody else? He said, anybody else? He said, no. He go, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, we got the run of the litter, man. A ruddy guy, a little fair complected, probably redheaded. He's out there uh, doing a woman's job. He's tending sheep. I mean, even the cat here wants somebody like that to be a king, man. That's the job you give people that nobody else wants to do, tending sheep. Who wants to tend sheep? And he said, I better bring him in here. And he said, well, what about, what about Eliab? And he said, the Lord said no. And he runs down through his boys. He said, the Lord said no. And he said, David, David? 
okay, go get him. So they go get him. David's out there taking care of the sheep, probably playing his harp, you know, and out there slinging a rock at the tree or whatever he's doing. And they come out there, and here comes a runner. He said, hey, man, the preacher wants to see you with your daddy. He said, what in the world, man? I ain't done nothing. I said, I took it out of a lamb, a lamb out of a lion and out of a bear, but I ain't messed around now. I ain't lost any sheep. He said, I don't know, man, but they want you at the house. So he hightails at the house. He comes in sweaty and dirty and messed up and, and all that kind of a deal. And he says, uh, yes, sir. And uh, daddy says, the preacher wants to talk to you a minute. And as soon as he walks up there and stands in front of uh, Samuel, the Lord said, that's the guy. And Samuel says, that's a king? That dirty, fair-complected run of the litter? And the Lord said, yep. But you see, him and I have been communicating out on the backside of the desert here, and he's been taking care of those sheep. He's left them a lot of time to talk to me, and that's a guy after my own heart. Have him kneel down and anoint him. If you and I were back in those days, although we've read about the escapades of David and how great a king he was, if you knew him back then, you know what you'd have done? You'd have done just what his brother did. You'd have laughed and said, it can't be him, man. The old preacher must be off his rocker. Can you imagine the pressure on that old preacher when he's anointing that guy when everybody else thought he would be wrong? Can you imagine how David felt? And David gets up and he goes, okay, appreciate the stuff to mat my hair down. I appreciate it. I've got to go back and get to take care of my sheep now. And then the Lord brings him along the lines. What I'm trying to tell you, and one more thing, and we'll break for lunch here. What I'm trying to tell you is, is sometimes the way God does things, it doesn't make sense. It's not always what it looks like. God will take a, they say the old saying is, God can take a crooked trick and a stick and draw a straight line. I don't care what's happened in your life. God can still use you. But people say, oh, no, God can't use you. Well, I don't care what they say. If God chooses to use you, it doesn't matter what they say. God said, you're mine, I'm going to use you anyway. He's the one that's making the deal. Now look at this thing, if you will, please. Come back to 1 Samuel, let's go to chapter 8. This will be the last one. 1 Samuel chapter number 8. See, preacher, this is boring. Yeah, I know, it is. It's a drag, but it's true. 1 Samuel chapter number 8. Look in verse number oh, 5. And using Samuel again. And he said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in, the, in the, thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like the nations. They're talking to Samuel, and they're saying, Listen, man, everybody else has a king, and you're telling us we have to follow God, and we don't want to follow God. We need to be up to date. We need to pick it up. You know, preacher, we need to change the music, and you need to get more in touch with the youth nowadays, and you need to do more than just preach to them at youth camp. You've got to have more entertainment. You've got to relax the rules a little bit. You've got to, you know, let, let a little music in, and let them bring their devices. I mean, you know, what in the world? How draconian is it for you to tell them they can't stay in touch with their friends and stuff like that? I mean, boy, that's just a little restrictive. That sounds a little cult-like to me, like it's a, a boot camp or something like that. I mean, preacher, you know, that's old school ways. You're old. Get out of the way. Look at verse 6. But the saying displeased Samuel when they say, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Well, guess what the Lord tells him? He says, Samuel, you're right. But you know what that flesh says? Well, everybody else does it, so it must be right. And the Lord comes down there and he talks to Samuel. And you know what he says to Samuel? He said, I don't care what the rest of the world says. They don't dictate or mandate to me. You know what I'm telling you? I'm telling you that it's not right to have a king. You need to have the Lord. The Lord's your king and this and that and the other. You're set apart. You're different than all the other nations. And they say, we don't care. Give us a king. Give us a king. And the Lord said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. 
give him a king. And he gives him a king. And that king is Saul. And Saul runs them off the deep end because they made a decision. You know what they said? They said, you know what? We want to be like the other nations. Here's what I'm telling you. Sometimes when God speaks to you, it's contrary to the worldly ways. You should get accustomed to that. God's not run by the rest of the world. Well, it's up to date, man. We're in 2023 now. The Lord's not, he's timeless. He's not worried what year it is on the calendar. The stuff he gave back in the days of Samuel is good for today. But that's where it runs contrary. So what happens in modern theology? In modern theology, in modern uh, denominations, modern churches, they think that we're supposed to be a church for the people. Give us a king. Give us a church like we want. They send out surveys. What kind of church would you like to see? They don't consult the Bible to find out what the church is supposed to be. They say, how would you like to see church? And if we do these things for you, will you come and will you support it? And will you do the things that need to be done? And we can build a building and we can have people come. And don't worry, we won't have you know 15 minutes of a, of a little talk, a chapel talk or something like that. And we don't even have to have a Bible. You know, get some holy jeans and a t-shirt up there. And you know we're going to have some sports and things like that after. And we'll just have that little bit of deal. Give us a king. Give us a king. Give us a king. That looks right. Everybody else is doing it. It must be right. No, the Lord said, no, I have one nation and I want you to follow after me. You're to be an example. Well, we don't want to be an example. We want to be like everybody else. You better be able to discern the voice of the Lord. And if you're not able to discern it, then you're going to have some difficult times. Still go to heaven. But I'm going to ask you to ponder something while you're out eating and playing games and having a great time. And I hope you have a good time and strip your gears and come in and war slap out tonight. But I want to ask you to do something. I want you to ask and ponder yourself, is that you or you don't even know when the Lord tells you that it runs contrary to the world that you're willing to say, Lord, speak. Thy servant heareth. I'll do what you tell me. But you better make sure it's God telling you. Father, bless your word this morning. I pray, God, that you'll be with us as we go. Thank you, Lord, for these kids. I know it's hard and difficult, especially on a morning time. Uh, for them to even be able to pay attention or listen. I pray, God, that you'll bless them for their efforts and uh, reward them for it and have stick in their minds what you'd have stick and take away whatever I messed up and pray your blessings upon uh, the food and all the things that are about to transpire. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Hopefully you guys got